If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I would invite you to find the classic narrative in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Once upon a time. It's a phrase that uh, is used by way of beginning children's bedtime stories. Once upon a time, there lived a young girl called Cinderella. Once upon a time in a far-off kingdom, there lived a beautiful princess. And once upon a time, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. And then there's Santa. Don't worry about it. I've learned my lesson after all these years. Your secret is safe with me. I'm not going to throw you-know-who under the bus. But I got to tell you what my grandson said the other day. He said, he said, Mom, I heard there's a guy coming who gets on our roof. If he does, I'm going to take my ninja sword and I'm going to get him. I love my grandson. That's all I'm saying. Okay? That's all I'm saying. The phrase, once upon a time, conjures up imagination and dreams and the miraculous. It conjures up otherworldly-like thoughts, does it not? Perfect for Christmas. Perfect. Except that the Christmas story is neither myth nor fairy tale. And it's the best story to tell. Because it's not only imaginative and dreamy, and miraculous, and otherworldly, it's true. Furthermore, no other Bible story encourages you and I to enter into the story itself, like the Christmas story. In the story before us this morning, God is literally challenging you and I to believe, to believe this. So much so that he sets up contrast so striking that we have to be doubly blind to miss it or to miss them, the contrast that is. The contrasting characters in the story, of course, I'm referring to Zechariah, the priest, and Mary, the eventual mother of Jesus. And that's not the only contrast Luke wants us to see. God is intentionally bringing out stark contrast in the characters of the story. And so he's going to do so as well through John, John the Baptist, that is, and his slightly younger cousin, Jesus. So let's put the story in its setting. And we're going to pick it up in verse 5. I mean, Luke introduces his gospel by talking to his friend Theophilus. And he's going to give this this chronological account of the life of Jesus from his conception. And uh, he tells us in the days, verse 5, of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while they, he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, 
He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So there is sort of the the setup to a couple of miracles that are about to take place. You have the introduction of the king, Herod. That gives us the time placement. We can put a time card down here. It's 4 B.C. Herod was a megalomaniac. He, you, you even sneezed in front of him, and he took your head off. If he, if he wondered if you had any animus toward him, he would show you the greater animus. Of course, the Matthew account shows his scheming to kill the Christ child. And so, once upon a time was literally perfect timing for this Christmas story to come about. Herod was a subject of Rome, and Rome ruled the world. And actually, that was a good thing for Jesus to come into the world because that brought the Pax Romana, which meant the Roman peace, which, you know, just like crossing over into other states or even crossing over into other peaceful country, because Rome ruled the world, that gave the gospel freedom to go. And because Rome built, like no other nation ever built, Roads, 50,000 miles of roads they built, much of which is still in existence today. The Appian Road is still in existence. Because of that, the gospel could go more quickly. It was a little bit like the first century internet, so to speak, allowing the gospel to fly, so to speak, even though Jesus is the only one who can pave a road to our hearts, right? There was heightened expectation in the land. The Jews were back in the land And they weren't worshiping idols anymore, even though their hearts were still far from God. But not everybody's heart was far from God. We're introduced to a couple of characters whose hearts were certainly not far from God, namely Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the account, as you can see just from the reading of it, describes them in glowing terms. They both come from priestly families. They're godly people. They're called righteous in verse 6, which means that they were the Old Testament version of a saint, of somebody who places their faith in the living God. In fact, it says they were righteous before God, which is the right person to be righteous in front of, right? In a day in which the righteousnesses of men were always on display in order to, to get the praise of men. These two are the real thing. Godly couples. And not unlike godly couples today, they were not exempt from struggles. We, Elizabeth, like Sarah before her and Hannah before her, was a, a woman of grief. Every woman, every Jewish woman entertained in her heart the possibility of becoming the mother of Messiah. Little did Elizabeth know she was about to get the consolation prize. They're older, verse 7 says exactly that. It says they were advanced in years, and, and when Mary gives her great praise, having just been told she'll have the Messiah, she describes them in her praise as old. We're not told how old they are. There's a lot of tradition and speculation, but we can guess they're probably in their 60s. You know, they're hardly Abraham and Sarah, but they're older. I mean, anybody here having babies in their 60s? Some people think they're actually in their 70s. There's no way of proving, but they're older. They're advanced. They're beyond the flower of their youth, so to speak. And then in this text, you can see that Zechariah is honored with a dream come true. 
verse 9, it says, the, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord in burn incense. This was a, this was a wildly great honor. Most priests would never get this opportunity. This was better than the publisher's clearinghouse. On this day, because of the lot falling on him, Zechariah would be closer to God than ever before, offering incense in front of the very curtain that would divide the Holy of Holies from the primary uh, a holy place, and he was going to take advantage of this with his own personal prayers as well. This was an amazing honor for him. Uh, many of you know I have a brother who, my, my, my claim to fame, my brother Larry, is uh, an NFL referee and has been for many years, uh, 20 years as a, as a referee. He was a side judge as well. And he was always one of the best in fact, uh, but he would tell you, he'd say, Pat, they're all good. They're all good. And I'm sure they are. They wouldn't be NFL referees. But each year at playoff time, our family would sort of wait to see if he would get the coveted of all coveted prizes, the joy of refereeing the Super Bowl. And every year would go by and he'd get a playoff here or another playoff there. And he actually was a side judge in a Super Bowl. He was a uh, review judge in a Super Bowl. He was an alternate referee in a Super Bowl, but he never, in all of those years, he was never awarded the ultimate prize of being on the actual field as a referee in the Super Bowl. It's estimated that there were as many as eight to 18,000 priests throughout Israel at this time. And they were chosen by lot. It wasn't like, it wasn't as if you sort of counted the days until your turn came up. You didn't know if your turn was going to come up. It was a sort of a toss of the dice, if you please. On top of that, a priest would only get, if he got this opportunity, you only got it once and only once. So what your experience in the reading of the text is, here is Zechariah who get, the lot falls on him. He's in the temple. He's before the altar of incense and he is overwhelmed with the idea, this is the only time I'll ever be here. And he's going to take advantage of it. And he's praying. He enters the temple. He's burning incense. You know, every article within the temple is a picture of Jesus, including the altar of incense, which is a picture of, a picture of prayer. Uh, David said that in Psalm 141. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the, as the evening sacrifice. So the incense altar was a picture of prayer ascending. And as far as Jesus is, is concerned, it's a picture of Jesus, our intercessor. And he's standing before this altar, this picture of Christ who prays for us, whoever lives to do that, by the way. And he's using this ritual as an opportunity to express his heart's desire, which is really fascinating. Because he's old and he hasn't given up. And even though he's about to stumble in his faith, God was listening to him. Is he listening to you? The Bible says the Lord's ear is not so heavy that he cannot hear. But in many cases, our sins just separate us from God. 
so that he will not listen. Have you ever read that? Just the other day, I heard of a little boy in our church. I mean a little boy, a believing little boy in our church who prayed. His family had suffered a, a significant setback, and they were literally drained of all of the meager resources that they had. This happened just the other day. They were down to nothing. And in fact, they were about ready to come to us, except that the little boy had prayed. And so because their little boy had prayed so fervently, the dad decided not to go to anybody. And that night, out of the blue, somebody came to their door, being compelled by God to give them a cash gift that covered everything. That just happened just the other day. Now, okay, that's the background. Now, I want, what I want to do is I want to look at the, the contrast in this once upon a time story. The first contrast is John and Jesus. This is a contrast of greatness, okay? And beginning in verse 11, here's where it says, And there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. He's in there by himself, and boom, there's an angel. And Zechariah was troubled. When he saw him, he fear fell upon him, but the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you'll call his name John, and you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He'll be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he, will, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient uh, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What an announcement. And then if you'll skip down to verse 26, that same angel shows up in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and uh, he appears, it says, the sixth month that the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom no end. Okay, there's, there's the two introductions. There's a, lot of, there's, a, there's a number of similarities between these two announcements to Zechariah and to Mary, and, and let's just delineate them. First, both were announced, both children, that is, were announced in advance by the angel Gabriel, right? Same angel. They're both in, announced in advance. Both births are unnatural and miraculous. Let's not downplay what took place with Zechariah and Elizabeth. This was a miracle. And other miracles would come along, like the dumbing of Zacharias for his unbelief. Also, in both cases, the angel tells them who the name will be, which is significant. You don't find that very often in the Bible. But God actually names the kids in both cases. In both cases, 
there's a huge stir amongst the people. And what you'd have to go back to the end, uh, one, uh, chapter 1, verse 66, chapter 2, verse 18. You've got a stirring amongst the people at, the, at, at this announcement. But the contrasts are even more stark. John was born to an aged and sterile woman. Jesus was born to a virgin. John was given a name which means God is gracious and that he is. Jesus was given a name which means Savior, and that's what we need, right? John was filled with God from birth, actually in the womb, right? Jesus was God from birth and before. Jesus, Lord at thy birth, as the hymn writer puts it, right? John was to prepare a way for the Lord, Intended only for time. Jesus was the Lord who would reign forever. John purposely decreased on earth. Remember that line? He must increase, I must. John purposely decreased on earth, then disappeared. Jesus decreased from heaven and then was exalted. John would be great, and and Gabriel says as much in verse 15. He's going to be great, and he outlines the aspects of his greatness. His name is John. It means gracious. He'd come, and he would bring joy. He would bring gladness. He would be great. He would be unusually separated. He's he's never going to touch any wine. He's going to have kind of a Nazarite life and vow. But Jesus was greatest. He's called the son of the highest. He's going to have a throne. He is a king. King's reign. His reign is forever. No question about it. Jesus is the greater baby. In fact, both, listen to this, both the lesser baby, that being John the Baptist, and his mother, Elizabeth, recognized this and praised God for this when Mary came to visit. In fact, look at this. This is... This is uh, this is right after Mary is, is, is told what's going to happen to her. It says, In those days Mary rose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. That's John the Baptist getting excited about his Lord coming in. And Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, And she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed, and I'm coming back to that, uh, that there would be the fulfillment of this spoken to her Lord or to her from the Lord. Without question, God wants us to see the contrast between these two babies. I mean, there's no upmanship here. It's not, you know, it's not like Mary shows up and Elizabeth, well, yeah, well, I'll tell you what happened to me. No, she completely humbles herself before the king of kings, you know, just barely beyond gestation, the beginning of it, in the womb of Mary. There's a second contrast, which I want you to see, and this is where we're going to kind of draw things to a conclusion around the Lord's table this morning. And that's Zechariah and Mary, and that's a contrast of faith. And so 
If you've been with us in our Romans series, you know we said that Paul, the Apostle Paul, virtually defined faith for you. want to know how to define faith, all you have to do is go to Romans chapter 4 and verse 20. And there it is, right there. Being fully convinced that, what God, that God was able to do what he had promised. That's what faith is. Faith is when you and I are fully convinced that God has the ability to come through with what he said. That's all faith is. And when you don't have faith, that's the antithesis of that is just the opposite. You are not believing. You are not convinced that God is able to do what he has promised to do. Faith, then, is the settled assurance of whatever God says he'll do. He'll do. Now, Gabriel's appearance to both Zechariah and Mary have some similarities. I mean, both were startled. You saw that, right? Both are shocked, as anybody would. And both are told not to fear. And that's about where the similarities end. The contrast between them are striking. Chapter 1, verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, Now mind you, the angel has just said, Your wife Elizabeth, in these advanced years, she's going to have a child. Remember? And so, and he's going to be great. He outlines what John the Baptist's life is going to be. If he, he's given this commentary in advance of John's life. And here is Zechariah's response. He says to the angel, How... How shall I know this? How can this be? That's the idea. For for I'm an old man. My wife's advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not say it. Believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, were wondering what his delay was all about. When he came out, he's unable to speak. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them, but remained mute. And this, and when this his time of service ended, he went home. First, well, let's 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 move to the contrast. Look at verse 34. Now, this is Mary's response to this amazing announcement from Gabriel to her. A few months later, verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. Nothing will be impossible with God. Now, notice these contrasts. First, Zechariah is told something hard to believe. He's older, but he's not exactly Abraham. He's not 100 years old. Mary is told something impossible to believe. People don't get pregnant apart from sex. Women don't get pregnant apart from sex. Zechariah asks, how can this be? In essence, he's questioning the ability and the power of God. Remember what Paul has already told us what faith is? You are fully convinced of what God has promised he he will do. Mary asked, how will this be? And there's a big world of difference here. 
In unbelief, Zechariah asked for a sign. In belief, Mary asked for an explanation. She's not doubting. She's just wondering. And it's not a sin to wonder. When Zechariah asked for a sign, the angel comes unglued, which is what I did a few years ago when I preached on this text. Some of you will remember. I just, I just, I felt like I was inside of the text when I was preaching. This is probably, I don't remember how many years ago it was. And I, I even said something I had to apologize for saying later on. Because if anyone questions the personality of angels, stop right now. <laughs> Because this angel is ticked off. It's like he's saying, you question the messenger of God? I'm not some two-bit messenger boy. I stand closer to God than any heavenly being. I am a sign. Yet you dare ask for something else. That's, in essence, what he's saying here. By the way, it's very interesting to me that Zachariah's wife, Elizabeth, in the midst of praising her cousin, uh, Mary, that is actually praising the Lord for what has taken place in Mary's life, she alludes to her very own husband's lack of faith and kind of throws him under the bus. In fact, it, look, here, here's what Elizabeth says to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. There's... There's more than an insinuation here. Her husband didn't. And his voice had been taken away. Zechariah is filled with doubt. But Mary is simply filled with wonder. Which is, you know, Mary just continues to be filled with wonder through the whole story, as anybody would be. She's not saying, I don't believe. She's saying, I don't understand. That's all. And, and there's a world of difference between those two. And with that, I mean, Gabriel obliges her. He says, well, here's how it's going to come down. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The shadow of the Almighty is going to, you know, over, overwhelm you. And that which is, comes about is going to be the Messiah. Now, that was pretty nice of him to do that. And so with that, Gabriel Gives the, lays down the very basis for faith when he says in verse 37, with God, nothing is what? Nothing's impossible. That's, that is the basis for our faith, of the belief that with God, nothing is impossible. And, and you don't have Mary saying, oh, well, hey, that all makes sense to me now. She did get an explanation, though, didn't she? And what was her response? Well, there it is. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your what? To your what? The promise of God. What is faith? Being fully convinced that what God has promised, he's able to do. And thus the story begins. We're still a ways off living happily ever after. But I just want to just sort of come to a conclusion around the Lord's table this morning and talk to the two groups that are in here this morning, the seekers and the followers of Jesus, whichever one you may be. And if you are a seeker, 
you need to be more like Mary and less like Zachariah. It's not wrong to wonder. It's not wrong to seek explanations, though God is not always obligated to give us an explanation that we you know, understand, right? And while Gabriel explained to Mary how he was going to do this, we don't have, oh, that makes perfect sense to me. It's wrong to question the clear word of God. If you want to be like Mary, believe. This whole passage is begging you to believe. And if you want to live happily ever after, you got to be like Mary. And some of you are probably thinking, well, you know, I mean, God's not coming to me and, you know, telling me to believe that, (laughs) you know, I'm going to have a baby when I'm, you know, I've never had sexual relations with another man. I mean, I, I don't have anything in my life that would even come close to believing a promise like that. Hey, how about the resurrection? Is the resurrection easy to believe? Go like this. No, it's not easy to believe. But if God says the resurrection is a fact, and by the way, we have historical fact to it, so it's not like blind faith here, is it? Then we believe it because that's another aspect of the power of God, is it not? So if you are a seeker here this morning, be like Mary and believe the promise of God who said, if you place your faith in my son, I'll take all of your sins away. I'll wipe the slate clean. I'll make you my child. That's a promise you can believe. And some of you need to do that yet. If you are a follower of Jesus, we need to be more, take more John's role and less of Jesus's. John willingly would give up his congregation to another, wouldn't he? He he must increase. I must what? And whatever greatness God bestows on you in your life, know this, it will have an apex. It will have a ceiling. It's going to have a plateau. It's going to have a limit. Where and when, like it or not, The day is going to come when you no longer ascend, but descend physically, right? I see it all the time as a pastor, watching people die in their old age. So the only clear answer to the follower of Jesus is make him bigger, right? Because he is greater. Amy Carmichael put it best. She said, give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope, no disappointments tire, the passion that burns like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me your fuel, flame of God. And when the great Jim Elliot was just 22 years old. He contemplated the writings of Amy Carmichael in Scripture, and he was thinking about John the Baptist. And he wrote in his 
journal one day to God. He said, saturate me with oil, the oil of the Spirit, that I may be a flame. But flame is often short-lived. This is, he's 22 years old when he's writing this. Flame is often short-lived. And then he, start, then he talks to himself. He says, canst thou bear this, my soul, a short life? And then he wrote, in me there dwells the spirit of the great short-lived, whose zeal for God's house consumed him. And then he quotes Amy Carmichael, make me thy fuel, flame of God. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we need to be more like John. And stay on the decrease while we continue to increase our love and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we go to the, commun- uh, the communion table, here's a question for you. When does this whole Christmas story, this once upon a time, begin? When, does it all- when did it all begin? You want to know where it all began in Scripture? Well, you could argue from eternity past. I mean, God, you know, he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, right? Uh, but... There is an intriguing passage of scripture in Hebrews chapter 10, where the writer says these words. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, you, that is, Father God, but a body you have prepared for me. There's the line. Now, this is actually a quote from the Septuagint, but that's another story. But a body you have prepared for me. This is where the Christmas story begins, right here. Why was it necessary for God to prepare a body for his son? Well, because God is spirit, right? And let me tell you something. I said this many years ago, and it's as true today as I said it then. In his incarnation, Jesus did not become less than God. He became more than God. He became God-man. And that is the story of Christmas. The God who cannot die. You can't kill a spirit, but you can kill a body. And God prepared a body for his son so that he could take on the likeness that you and I have, as depicted in the bread at the communion table, and die and shed his blood as depicted in the juice so that we might worship him properly. In his carnation, Jesus didn't become less than God. He became more than God. He became, and forevermore, God-man. Will you pray with me? Our Father, thank you so much for this great story and these great contrasts of these great characters, all of them, great characters. Zechariah was even a man of faith, but he struggled. I pray that you would make us more like Mary. I pray for those in our midst who 
have never believed like Mary believed. That they would believe that Jesus loved them. That Jesus died for them. That Jesus took upon himself their sin. If that's you, dear friend, place your faith in Jesus who not only did that but rose from the dead. And we believe this. I pray, Lord, you would bless the followers here. You'd make us more like John. Quit trying to be Jesus. We're not the king of kings. We're not the Lord of lords. We're not the end all. We are your servants, and our lives, all of our lives, relatively speaking, are short-lived. And so may we say with John that you, Lord Jesus, must increase while we decrease and ever worship you, our God-man, our Savior. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.